1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, one of the things that, that John writes here that's so awesome is he creates such a clear divide. Like, there's no question after reading this verse or reading 1 John or even reading the New Testament in general that there's like, there's like two different paths we can walk down. There's two different value systems. There's two different sets of priorities that we can adopt. We can adopt the priority system. We can adopt the priorities and the, the, the viewpoint of the world. We can adopt the viewpoint of God. And throughout all of redemptive history, the differences between the world and God have been very, very great. The reality is there is no point in, in history where the world at large has said, man, let's just do everything like God wants us to. If you study any period of history, the people following after God are always in the minority. Always. And so as John, in 1 John, as John writes, it's no different then. So he writes to this new generation of Christians saying, do not love the world or the things of the world, because if you love the world, meaning if your heart is filled up, meaning if your hopes and your aspirations and your dreams are filled with the world, then you're not going to have room for God. And this is, this is one of the things I just want to make so clear as we're diving into this three-week series. You can't have both. You, you cannot have both. You cannot love the world and the things of the world and love God and the things of God. And any time you think you can have both, you're lying to yourself. One of the hardest things to come to terms with as a Christian living in a non-Christian culture, living as a teenager in today's world that wants to follow Jesus, is that following Jesus will come at a cost. It always comes at a cost. And there will be social penalties that you pay for being a Christian. There will be opportunities that you miss out on because you're a Christian. And the thing is, when we evaluate what we love, what value system we operate from, what John but the rest of the New Testament writers, what Jesus keeps coming back to over and over and over and over again is that the calling to follow Jesus is always worth it. Every single time. He goes on, verse 16, and he kind of tells us what the world in his mind is all about. Now before you read this, I, I want you to know, like, words can have more than one meaning. Okay? And so, here in this concept of the world, he's not talking about the actual, like, dirt, okay? And so when God created the heavens and the earth and God created the world, he's not saying, like, hey, you need to hate dirt, okay? Like, Earth Day, forget it. Burn down the forest. Like, he's not saying that at all. Yeah, he's not, he's not saying that. He's talking about the concept of the world, meaning the cultural construct of the world around us. And so here's, 
he's going to give some words and some terms, some phrases that are going to give definition to what he's thinking about when he says the world. So the world and all that's in the world, verse 16, he goes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, those things in the world, like what your flesh wants, what your eyes want, like pride and stuff like that, those things that mark what's important in this world, it's not from God, but it's from the world. And so here's, here's something we've got to understand about ourselves. As human beings, we have natural desires, okay? Has anybody like, ever experienced the natural desire of hunger? Yeah. You have a natural desire to eat. Now, I don't always feel that desire in the healthiest of ways. In fact, it takes a lot of work on my part to fulfill that desire of hunger, to, have, to actually meet that desire, feel that desire in a healthy way. There was a time where I ate 36 snickerdoodle cookies in one sitting. That's... So, we have, um, my wife is pretty amazing, and I didn't realize it early in marriage because I was a dumb 20-something-year-old, and so, like, we fought about food early in marriage and, like, who would cook and things like that, and so I found myself kind of resentful towards what, like, and how she cooked and stuff like that, and so if you know my wife, if you've gone out, like, she doesn't like to eat, she doesn't like food. And so it's like 6 p.m. or whatever. And it's like, hey, it's time for dinner. What do you want to do for dinner? She's like, I don't know. Can we just go to sleep? It's like, wait. Like, the way, you, the way you're going to cope with hunger is by going to bed right now? And she's like, yeah. Like, that, that doesn't work for me at all. And so, like, we would argue about food over and over again. But then, about four years ago, we're coming up on Christmas. And my wife says, hey, I think I want to try to bake some snickerdoodle cookies. I'm like, what? where did that come from? She's like, oh, I found a recipe. Okay, great. So she makes them. And they come out of the oven, and they are these, like, light, fluffy. I mean, they are just phenomenal. Like, like it's one of those things where, you know, you know, like, when you eat something, and it takes no effort to eat it? Because it's just, like, it's not tough. It's not hard. It's not chewy. It's just, like, the perfect texture. So that was these cookies. Um, and 36 of them later, I realized, hey, um, whew, uh, not, not the healthiest way to uh, go about eating anything. In fact, I, I don't know if there's anything that you should eat 36 of at once. A sun, a sunflower seeds, maybe? But, but anyway, I digress. So we know, listen, listen, listen. Like, inside of us, inside of us, we have some natural desires. And as human beings, we have the tendency to fulfill those desires in unhealthy ways. And so the desire to eat and to be, to be fed you can see like there, there are unhealthy ways to fulfill that desire. The desire to feel loved, like one of the realities, and, and I would say 60 or 70% of the conversations I have within this ministry are with people who feel left out, are, are people who feel alone. We have a group of 100 people in here, and there are people in this room who feel alone. Like, and it's not like one or two. There's many, many people in here, many, many people in our youth ministry that just feel alone. And so we, we know what it, it feels like to want to be accepted by people. 
But we also know because either in our own life or in the lives of our friends or others, we've seen people fulfill that desire to be accepted in very, very, very unhealthy ways. Incredibly unhealthy ways. And what kind of like doubles the issue, it compounds the issue, is that when that starts happening within the the context of a dating relationship. And so you have a girl or a guy who wants to feel loved, who wants to feel accepted by the opposite sex, and then this dating relationship, and they will do almost anything, anything to feel loved and to feel accepted. So what John's saying is, look, it's natural. (laughs) You're going to have natural desires. But when those desires are fulfilled, when those desires are met, in the way that the world defines they should be met, you're not living the good life that God has called you to. Because God's design, God's design is the true good way. So we we have to ask the question, um, this is kind of an interesting concept. So we have these desires of the flesh, these lusts of the flesh, the cravings of sinful man, depending on what Bible you're reading right now. And we know it's kind of natural to fulfill some of these desires in ways that are unhealthy. And in, in short, it's natural for us sometimes to sin. Now, sinning is any time we do anything that's outside of what God wants us to do. So we, we have these different words. And so, like, I, I think that churches today are a little bit guilty of erasing some really good words that are very clear. I think sin is a very good word that's very clear for what it is. And so, like, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die on the cross to, like, get rid of bad things or something like that. Like, he, he died on the cross, and one of the primary factors that came into play was sin breaking God's will for our life, going against what God wants for us. And so we have to ask the question, why do we sin? Why, why is it that sin is a part of our existence? And taking it a step further, like if Jesus died for sinners, if people who are sinful, how did they get that way? Like, like are, we, are we sinful because we have sinned or do we sin because we're sinful? Like, which was first? Were we, were we, like, born bad, and so we do bad things? Or is it that we were born good, and then we did bad things, and we became bad? I think one of the realities of how we live today is that within us, there's a, there's a part of who we are that just craves the wrong things. And so we fulfill these things in the wrong way. Now, we're going to jump ahead to a different passage, James 1, 13 through 15. And as we're, as we're like covering this topic of sin, I think it's incredibly interesting how James 1 talks about sin. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God never, ever, ever, tempts you to sin. So let me give you an example. If I know I don't need to eat 36 snickerdoodles, God is not going to make 36 perfect snickerdoodles and put them on my front doorstep and wait and watch and see what I do. Like, I, I just want you to know, like, 
Like God doesn't like dangle sin in front of you and say, is he going to be faithful? Is he? No, God doesn't do that. God, God does not put stumbling blocks in your way just so he can like pick you up off the ground. Like God does not tempt you to sin. And so the question is, if it's not God, where in the world does that come from? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Everyone. Our, our sin in our life is an issue of compatibility. And you know talking about with compatibility? Like, like, I just like certain things. And so in the context of dating, like compatibility is like, oh, yeah, I want to start dating somebody who I'm compatible with. Like, we go well together. Like, I like Marvel. She likes Marvel. We know that we are naturally attracted to people we think we are compatible with with. And so very rarely, very rarely will, will you see people who are in a dating relationship that never like anything that's the same. And so as an example, my wife and I, we met at a Texas Ranger baseball game. What I bought her for our wedding were glass seats to a Dallas Stars game because what she wanted more in the world than anything was to go watch hockey. And so for me, I'm like, you bet. Now, one of the cool things, this has nothing to do with the lesson tonight, but I want to say it anyway because it made my heart happy. Um, my wife has helped pass the love of sports onto my daughter. My daughter stopped. She's five years old, and she stopped us the other day, and she said, hey, when are the Dallas Cowboys playing again? It's been so long since we watched football. I'm like, oh my goodness, my heart was just a flutter. Okay, and so... So we know that there's things out there that are appealing to us. Verse 14 says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, meaning when you see out there what looks good to you, you're going to act on it. Like what looks good to you may not look good to me. And so the temptations that you deal with may not be the temptations I deal with. Because you, you may sit there and say cinnamon and sugar all over a cookie is like the worst thing you can do in the world, and I'm like, snickerdoodles are the best thing ever. And so, like, we have our own desires, our own issues, and we are tempted and we are lured away by our own internal self-issue desires. Verse 15, but when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so innate within us are these desires waiting to be fulfilled, waiting to be fulfilled in very, very wrong ways. And so what happens is we have this desire and we see out there the way we can meet this desire and it starts growing. Like our desire grows and grows and grows. And in our hearts, we make room for it to grow. And we start thinking, you know what? Honestly, it wouldn't be that bad. Of, like, uh, look, hey, listen, <laughs> I know there's 36, but just one is not going to hurt anything. 36 would be a problem. We all agree eating three dozen cookies is absolutely wrong. It's not going to hurt, though, if I just eat one. But when we put that in the category of the major desires that we have and having relationships fulfilled in very meaningless but painful ways of saying, you know what, I know, I know, I know I said that I'm never going to do that with a girl before I got, get married. I know I said that on Saturday nights I'm not going to do that again. I know, but honestly, like, there's a part of me that wants that. 
So what happens for a lot of us is that rather than squashing that desire, we let that desire grow. We don't act on it, but it grows and grows and grows. And then eventually, after it grown, has grown so much, we act on it. And the thing we thought we would never do, the situation we thought we'd never find ourselves in, we find ourselves in. And we've realized that that desire we had that we thought we would never fulfill in that negative, sinful way, we just did. And we're on the other side of it, that desire that we thought would be fulfilled, and it was going to be so awesome, it's so awesome to eat the cookies, we're going to feel so good afterwards, we feel like we normally do after we eat three dozen cookies. Miserable. Miserable. And so, if you ever experienced something like that, what you've experienced is the difference between the good life as defined by God and the good life as defined by the world. Now, to, to kind of simplify that whole process of how sin takes root in our life, I, w- I want you to think of it this way. One of our parents that, that I met with on Sunday had a great way to explain kind of that process of sin in our life. I see, I want, I take. I see it, I see it, and it looks good to me. I want it, and it looks, and it, it sounds like it'll be great, so I take it. Now, here's, here's one of the things that goes into play here. Like, you see it, you want it, you take it. You know what's left out of that equation? Thinking. And when we operate in, in a way where we check our brain at the door, we just let the, the desires take over, the want to determine what we do. We're putting ourselves in a situation where we're no longer following the good life as defined by God. Now, it goes on uh, in, in 1 John 2, the desires of the flesh. But he, he takes a step further, the desires of the eyes. If it looks good to me, I want it. Now, it is, it's through our eyes It's through our eyes where most of our desires are triggered. We see something that looks good to us, and it could be acceptance. It could be like, oh, 36 cookies, whatever. We see it, and our heart is triggered. But we have to be very careful with something because we live in a very outcome-oriented society. And so we talked in the Integrity Series, what's more important, studying hard or getting an A? And and a, a lot of times... Getting the A. Like, getting the A is what we work for. Therefore, the most important thing is the A. And, and I think people who have, like, a, a better vantage point would say, no, 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 honestly, in ninth grade, it's not really important that you get the A. What's important now is that you learn to study. Like, learn to be a thinker. Learn to work hard. I would rather a, a 14-year-old think hard and work hard than get an A now. Because at age 30... I want them to be thinkers and workers, not just focused on how they can manipulate their way into success. And so we're this outcome-oriented society, and so we think that it's only when we do those big things that, that it's the problem. Listen to what Ma- uh, Jesus says in the book of Matthew, Matthew 27, 527. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which means don't cheat on your wife. Like, one of the commandments that you've grown up hearing is don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, okay? Like, you've heard that said. 
okay. And everybody in this room and everybody in the audience, listen to this. It was like, yeah, like that would be terrible. Like why in the world, why in the world would I do something that awful? I'll never have an outcome that's that bad. But Jesus, who is the biggest proponent of the good life, Jesus said, I said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, meaning with any, any, and now if you're a girl and you're like, you don't get this part, understand like the guys in this room are like, okay, I don't even know what the word lustful intent means, but I think I know what it means. Um, Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Meaning, if your mind has acted and you've gone through the mental exercise of thinking what it would be like to do that sin, understand like you've already done it. Now, that does not mean just go ahead and do it. Like, okay, since you've already committed the sin, might as well follow through. That's not the logic that follows here. I want you to listen to the logic that follows. If your right eye, if what you look at things with causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin, deal with it and be okay with it. That's not what it actually says. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, this is how serious Jesus took it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your eyes than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What we allow ourselves to see is incredibly significant. Now, one of the things that we realize about youth ministry, 6th through 12th graders, is that the burden of being like awesome Awesome Christians does not really fall on teenagers. When we think about how the church should function, one of the things we really, really believe is that it's, it's adults, it's parents that should be modeling the way, modeling the way to their kids what following Christ really should look like. And so there's this pastor and author out there, Ted Tripp, who was interviewed, and he was asked a question, hey, Ted, you deal with a lot of families in the church. He's like, yeah, I deal with a lot of families in the church. And you deal with a lot of families across the nation. He's like, yeah, I deal with a lot of families across the nation. And so he's like, you really know kind of what's going on, right? And he's like, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like the American church, I've got a pretty good grasp of what's going on. Okay, Ted, you love families, you love the church, and you, you know a whole lot. Ted, what is the number one problem in the church today? Like, what's the number one threat in the church today? And without skipping a beat, without pausing, without hesitating, you know what this guy says? Pornography. Is the number one threat, the number one issue, the number one threat to Christianity in America today is pornography. And he goes on to explain, he says, because pornography undermines everything about the family. It creates dissatisfaction in marriages and ultimately leads to divorce situations. It's a sin to, to follow through on that, with, with, like it has multi-generational implications. Like there are men and women who struggle in this area simply because of what they let themselves see that generations of their family will suffer because they decided to let something they see become something they want and in turn they took. John's very clear that the desires of the eyes are something to be aware of. 
They close it out by saying, the pride of life. If it makes me look good, I want it. One of the most powerful forces in your life that will enable you to continue sinning is what the people around you know or don't know about you. Your ability to continue doing the wrong thing is most likely going to be determined by the people around you. So here's, here's what we do. If we know what we're doing is wrong, we hide it from the people who know it's wrong. We tend to keep that secret. And if we know what we're doing is wrong, we will circle ourselves with, we will encircle ourselves with people who say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. And the scary part is, is when it translates into the actual church. So, had a conversation with a group of our guys a couple of months ago. And these guys are trying to do the right thing, but there's a sin that crept in to a, a circle of guys in our youth ministry and has become just a part of who they are. And you know what the biggest challenge to that is? Is that they look around the circle of Christian brothers and they can only point to one or two who are not participating in that sin with them. And so when there's an opportunity to actually give accountability where Christians should speak into the lives of other Christians, nobody has credibility. Nobody. Because everyone's a participant. And so one of the scariest things that could happen is that in our youth ministry, there could be sins, there could be things where we are following the world's way that we in this room accept together. And then there's no one that can correct it. I talked about some of the loneliness. Do you know? Do you know that the church is called a family? Do you know that the the style of love that should be in the church is the sacrificial love that would even take you to the grave for people in this room? Like that's the level of relational depth. And I, I think there's a part of us in this group that have accepted relational isolation as just a de facto, a default part of what might be okay. Because that person's just not assertive enough. She's just not outgoing enough. Or if she would just go on that trip or whatever it is, then she'd get connected or he would be a part. And I think if we're honest, there are just some various things in this group that we would say are really not God's plan for how his people are. But we've all accepted it. And so nobody can speak into it. And so to those group of guys that we, we spoke a couple of months ago, and if, if you're one of those guys, it was the conversation started in a Ford Explorer, um, if you wonder about that, uh, if I'm talking about you. Uh, so um, as we carried on that conversation, one of the things that was interesting and I, I thought was so awesome, in the midst of that conversation, they could identify. They could identify a couple of guys from our youth group who lived above reproach in that area. They actually lived in the right way. And you know what they said about those guys? It's awesome. Because even though they struggled with it, even though it was something they were tempted to do over and over and over again, they were able to at least identify some guys in our group who were doing it the right way. And I just want you to know that you might be able to be one of those people who even though a lot of people struggle with it, you can give encouragement and support by doing it the right way. 
So as we, as we kind of close out tonight, I, I want you to kind of just hear this final phrase. Um, and so I'm going to read verse 17, and then we'll wrap up. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Meaning, you can, you can live the good life of the world, but just know it's temporary. Just know that living life that way cannot last. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the good life in the way that God calls us to will live forever. So as you're thinking about how to wrestle with the desires in your own life, I want you to just hear this. Desires drag and destroy. Desires drag and destroy. A lot of times when we think about the big sins out there, we think it's only a problem if the destruction occurs. Like we hear the, the message, hey, teenagers, don't drink and drive. Hey, teenagers, don't drink and drive. Hey, teenagers, don't drink and drive. The only way it's a problem, though, is if I get pulled over and get a DUI or get in a wreck. And like we're this outcome-oriented, catastrophe-oriented thing. And so our, judge, our, our judgment on whether it's bad or not is based on the outcome, the destruction. But understand that the desires that you act on pull your heart away. So right now, my encouragement for you is to think about where is it? Where is it that your heart is being pulled away from a love of God towards a love for the world? Where is it that your love for God is being tested? Because you're allowing your heart to be filled with the desires of the world rather than the desire for God. And if you need, if you need to, imagine the destruction. Imagine what it would be like if you acted on the things that are pulling you away from God. Just take it to the extreme. And so I, I want you to think about, like if you're like, hey, listen, that integrity series really challenged me when it comes to cheating on my tests. If you're like still struggling with that, I just want you to imagine in a couple of years, you're going to go off to college and just imagine what it's going to be like to get kicked out of college because you cheated. Like if you need to imagine the destruction, just imagine that. Imagine, imagine that if you want to be a lawyer and you're studying for the board exam, just imagine getting kicked out of law school and saying all my hopes and dreams for my career and the future are going to be ruined. If you need to imagine the destruction, if, if, if you just like struggle with anything, if you are so convinced that it has to be a terrible ending for you not to do it, like, then imagine what could be. But I'm telling you that the wise decisions you make in life, following the good life, is not about the destruction at the end. The scarier thing is your heart being pulled away from the creator of all things. Because here's, here's what I know. 98% of this room raised their hand and said, I am here. The reason I am here is because I want to follow Jesus. And I know that tomorrow morning, for some of you, that's just not going to be true. You're not going to school to follow Jesus. You're going to allow the good life of God's plan to take a back seat for the good life of the world's plan. That drag is real. And it'll stick with you for a long time. So two things. Assess the drift. What conversations am I having in my head that may lead to sin? Where is it that I'm envisioning sin? 
What am I thinking about that may lead to sin? Um, what secret attitudes am I allowing to remain in my heart? It's attitudes that I have that my friends may know about, may, may have called me on, but I'm just allowing them to sit there. Because I think the number one thing we can do is assess where our heart's at. 